Our text today is found in 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 7, 8, and 9. The note I sent out raised a question, and um, I judged, prejudged, some of the folks that would read it when I talked about the middle voice and the passive voice, and I know you don't care whether it's middle or passive or whatever. Well, I'm going to try to help you to care today. And um, that may have been presumptuous on my part to make a statement like that and to judge you. Uh, but it wasn't you, it was the others. See, I sent out about 70 of those. So, And some of those go to family members on both sides and all the way back to South Dakota and a few other spots. Vexation is temporary. Deliverance is coming. That's how I titled this. We looked last week at the situation with Sodom and Gomorrah. And we observed uh, the destruction of those cities because of God's judgment upon them. And living in the city of Sodom was the nephew of Abraham, Lot by name. He and his wife, uh, they had two unmarried daughters, and they had three married daughters and three son-in-laws. You may remember when God informed Abraham that he was going to destroy the cities, he said, well, I've got a nephew living there. He said, um, uh, for 50 righteous people, would you not destroy the city? Would you spare it if there were 50 righteous there? God said, yes, for 50 righteous. He said, well, now don't get upset with me, but suppose we be five short of that 50 and there only be 45 righteous. Would you spare it for 45? And the Lord said, for 45 righteous, I would spare the city. And he said, well, suppose there's only 40. Would you spare the city for 40? And the Lord said, for 40, I would spare the city. And he said, well, how about 30? <laughs> if, if we can find 30 that are righteous there, would you spare the city? And, uh, the Lord said, for 30 righteous, I'd spare the cities. Well, now, don't get upset with me, but suppose there be only 20. Would you spare the city for 20? And the Lord said, for 20, I would spare the city. And Lot pushed it a little bit. He said, well, what if there only be 10? Would you spare the city for 10? And the Lord said, for ten righteous, I would spare the city. And Abraham said, thank you. See, Abraham had a, had a nephew, Lot, his wife, his two unmarried daughters, his three married daughters, and the three son-in-laws. Ten. So he quit at ten. He quit too soon. <laughs> Because there were not ten righteous in the city. And the only ones that got out of the city was Lot and 
his two unmarried daughters. His wife made it a little ways out, but then she turned around when they were instructed not to turn and look back at the destruction of the city. She turned around and was turned into a pillar of salt. So it was Lot and his two unmarried daughters that escaped. And that story takes an ugly turn down the road as well when they get up into the cave and things, but we'll we'll not venture there as the focus of our study today. Vexation is identified in the text as that which plagued Lot But deliverance was provided and our theme day by day is yes, vexation can arise. It's temporary. Deliverance is on the way. Look with me at verse 7 of the second chapter of 2 Peter. And delivered just Lot, vexed with the filthy conversation of the wicked, For that righteous man dwelling among them in seeing and hearing vexed his righteous soul from day to day with their unlawful deeds. The Lord knoweth how to deliver out of temptation and to reserve the unjust, excuse me, the Lord knoweth how to deliver the godly out of temptation and to reserve the unjust under the day of judgment, to be punished. The circumstances that we as believers encounter on a day-to-day basis, living in a pagan society, can certainly become vexation, which is identified as a state of being annoyed, frustrated, or worried. And so in this epistle, the Apostle Peter, knowing what was coming for Christians as God had revealed that to him, has provided us with seven basic principles that will enable us to deal with annoyance, frustration, and worry. Faith in the promises that God has given us in His Word it will provide a means by which we are able to find deliverance. In the sphere of faith, in the very great promises of God, we are to develop a morality that will give credibility to our lifestyle. In the sphere of that lifestyle, we are to develop a process of the study of the Word of God. In the sphere of that study of the Word of God, we are to develop a self-controlled will. In the sphere of that self-controlled will, we are to develop a contentment, regardless of what our circumstances might be. In that sphere of contentment, no matter what our situation is, we are to develop a consistency of duty to God that is characterized by our pleasing 
God. And within that sphere of that consistency of duty in our pleasing God, we are able to develop brotherly love, a responsive love, and in that sphere we are able to develop self-sacrificial love. The mark of spiritual maturity and of our ability then to deal with the frustration, the anxiety, and the worry in our lives day by day is to reach that status of self-sacrificial love. When we accept Jesus Christ as our personal Savior, we experience what the Bible describes <clears throat> excuse me, as a spiritual birth, and we establish at that point a citizenship in the kingdom of God. But instead of immediately being caught up to our new home with God, we receive a commission as we are appointed as sojourners, which is described as foreigners not living in their own country, but living alongside the locals to do business for their king. And so we are left here to do business for the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Now that business is individual and personal as God has designed for each of us a place of service and a representation in this foreign land in which we live. Our personal role as a sojourner is identified, we have said in our earlier study, by our spiritual gifts. That God has, at the moment of salvation, given to each one of us at least one spiritual gift, sometimes a combination of gifts, from administration, to teaching, to helps, to service, to exhortation, to mercy, to word of knowledge, to word of wisdom, or even giving. We have at least one of those gifts and frequently a combination of them in order to live out the design that God has given us. Now, while the gifts are given to us, we find in our study of Scripture that they're given in varying degrees that also help identify our role in the kingdom of God as a sojourner living here upon the earth. And then he brings circumstances into our life, or we bring circumstances frequently into our lives, that those circumstances indicate our field of service, what we are to do with our gifts and how we are to go about it. God doesn't assign us a responsibility, a job to do, that He does not provide us with the gifting and the ability and the resources to do that. Once we identify what our spiritual gifting is, then we will better recognize our ministry as a sojourner, and to the degree that we understand our personal ministry, will be our ability to recognize the divine appointments that are developed and assigned to us. So many times we have those appointments and we miss them because we, did, we didn't understand what our role was 
in the plan of God. And so that's the objective that we have in our studies on Sunday morning is that we might better understand God's direction and purpose and recognize his leadership day by day. Look with me at our text. Verse 7 says, And he delivered just Lot, vexed with the filthy conversation of the wicked. Now once again, I point out the word order is a bit different in the original language. And uh, that word and takes us back to the verses that we studied last time as it relates to the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. But there's a contrast to that, and he said, and righteous lot. That word righteous is translated from the Greek word dikaion, and it means one who has performed or conformed to the specifications of the blueprint. It's a building term. Righteousness is conforming to the specifications of the blueprint. God has a blueprint for each of our lives, a design for each of our lives, and we are to conform to that. There is an inability on our part to meet the standard of God as it relates to salvation. For in order to please God, we would have to be perfect, and there is none good, no, not one, there is none perfect, we have all sinned and come short of the glory of God. And so that prompted the sending of Jesus Christ to the cross of Calvary to pay our debt, to conquer our enemy death and the grave, to intercede for us during this lifetime before His heavenly Father, and then to come back and get us to go with Him. So we have righteousness credited to our account by the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ conformed to the plan. But God also has a plan for our daily life, and we're going to look at that. Just follow me through here when it says, And righteous Lot. How could we call Lot righteous? He was the nephew of Abraham. God had said to Abraham, I want you to get up from out of your country and from away from your family and your people, and I want you to go to a place that I will show you. Well, Abraham didn't do that. He went with his father and the rest of his family up from Ur of the Chaldees up to Haran. And uh, while they were in Haran, then his father died, and then Abraham was obedient to do what God said. To a degree, he got up from his father's house, his father had passed, and he went down to the land of Canaan where God led him. However, he took Lot, his nephew, and his family with him. He had said, I want you to get out of your father's house and up from your father's people. I want you to go to this land. God's tolerant. (laughs) He is long patient. And uh, he allowed that to happen. When they got down into the land of Canaan, though there began to be some problem uh, between 
Lot's herdsmen and Abraham's herdsmen. And so there came a time of separation. Lot pitched his tent toward Sodom at that time. He chose the better pastures when Abraham offered him uh, the choice of that. And uh, uh, we find out that his righteousness was not through his own doing, but his conformity to the plan of God, uh, we're going to see in our study, was based upon his believing God, and that believing God was counted to him for righteousness. But let's, let's see where Lot goes with this. He's identified as righteous because of his belief in God. And we say, we see it says, and righteous Lot being vexed, actually continually distressed through oppression under the way of life of the wicked, of the unprincipled men that he lived with uh, in that community in the sphere of sexual and moral excess, God delivered him. Now, I put a note, don't tune me out. I'll talk to you in just a few minutes about grammar. We'll leave grandpa out of it, but we'll talk about grammar. Alexander the Great is the one that developed the most exact language that has ever been developed. Now, I don't know how much longer I'm going to be able to say that because with the digital aspect of where we are today and uh, with language uh, uh, changing in the nether world and the cyberspace, uh, someone may come up with a more exact language, but in his day, it was the most exact language uh, that had ever been developed. When his father died and Alexander took over as king uh, of Macedonia, uh, he immediately went out, even though he was just 16 years old, he went out and conquered all of the peninsula of Greece. They were city-states. There was not one uh, government over uh, the Grecians at that time. They were city-states, and he conquered those. And then he said to them, I'm your champion. He didn't say, I'm your conqueror. He said, I'm your champion, and uh, together we're going to go out and conquer the world. Well, he recognized when he set out to do that that he had a problem because while they were all Greeks, they spoke five different languages. Well, they all called it Greek, but it was five different forms of Greek. And so Alexander held a bivouac and said, we'll set up camp. Uh, we've got to do a little work because we've got to have communication. And so he took the five basic languages and developed a new language called Koine Greek. The word Koine means common and it's anything but common in its design, most exact language that had been developed. If you use all of the rules of grammar and apply those to anything that's written in this language, you can understand exactly what the language said. We have so many denominations and so many 
different beliefs within the Christian realm today because of different interpretations of what the Word says, a different understanding of what it says. That ought not to be the case because God has designed it so that we can know exactly what His Word says. Wherever Alexander went, he made those people that he conquered learn his language, would not sign a treaty with them till they had learned his language. As he developed the language, he taught it to his troops, and then they taught it to the world. And by the time that Christ came on the scene, and by the time the New Testament was written, it was a developed language that was known around the world. It was the language of literature and uh, can give us clear understanding of what God is saying. He developed the language based upon the form of the words, the way the word is spelled. For example, uh, there is a word in the Greek language that means to loose. Luo means I am loosing. Luais means you, singular, are loosing. Luai means he, she, or it is loosing. Luomen means we are loosing. Luate means you, plural, are loosing. And lucai means they are loosing. So by just changing the form of the word, the spelling of the word, one is able to convey exactly the direction of it. Six different forms, but these are only in the present active indicative. Present tense means continuing action. Active voice means the subject produces the action. And uh, the indicative mood is the mood of reality. Well, we have the we have the middle voice, we have the passive voice. So the word changes its spelling if it's middle or passive from where it is if it's active. But once you learn those forms, and with the modern uh, development uh, within the digital world, uh, there's not too many people that are there that interested in learning to recognize the form because we have the, the helps that are available to us uh, that somebody else has identified the form. But there's a dozen or more different ways of spelling that word luo, but the way it's spelled will change our understanding of who is doing what to whom and how long it's going to occur and all that that continues. If you were to look up this word delivered, that's translated in the King James Version by the word delivered, you would find the Greek word is erosato. E-R-R-S, excuse me, E-R-R-U-S-A-T-O. And, uh, you would find, if you looked up that form of this word, 
In a modern Greek grammar, bear with me, in a modern Greek grammar, it would say that this word is middle passive deponent. The word deponent means that there is no active voice form of this word. There's no active voice form where the subject produces the action of deliverance. There's no form of that word in the language. The form is either middle voice, which means the subject participates, or it's passive voice, which means the subject is acted upon. Or it is middle passive, which identifies both a participation on the part of the subject and a participation on the part of the object. Now that's important to us. Back in the 4th century, the there was, among the linguists, there was a movement underway to uh, revive classical Greek. Classical Greek had kind of faded from the scene, and so there was a movement to revive it, and in the process of reviving classical Greek, they decided to revise, not revive, but revise Koine Greek. So they changed the rules of grammar. After this, 300 and some years after this had been written, they changed the rules of grammar. And they did away with the grammatical influence of the gender of the word. In Greek, the word could be male, female, or neuter. Well, they did away with the significance of that. And they lost a very important part of our understanding what God's doing in his word. Because if the word was masculine, it meant that the subject initiated the action. If the word was feminine, it meant that the subject was a responder to the action. If the word was neuter, then the emphasis was not upon initiation or response. It was just an instrument or a means or a tool in it. That's fascinating when you understand that and you read down through the text. And that's why I break it down for you in your study guide, whether this word is masculine or whether it is feminine or whether it is neuter. Well, they did away with that. You take Greek today, you'll not find a Greek grammar being used anywhere today that identifies the role of gender. Matter of fact, you'll find some that will at least say there was a time when the gender had a grammatical effect, but that's been lost. It wasn't lost, it was thrown away years and years ago back in the fourth century. So I continue to emphasize that. My early Greek was with that understanding, and it gives a complexion to our understanding of what we have in the Word. Now, the other thing that they did 
was if there was no active voice form of the word. Now, remember, if it's active voice, the subject produces the action. I am going to the store. I produce the action of go. I am being taken to the store is the passive form of it. But there is in Koine Greek a middle voice. The middle voice means the subject participates, but he acts with some other agency or some other person. And so if the word is middle voice, I am participating in going to the store. I am going with so-and-so, or, uh, and we add that aspect. There are some words that are both middle passive. So that means there's participation on the part of the subject. But it also means there is a participation on the part of one that initiated. There is an initiation of that. And that's what we have in the word delivered. It is a middle passive. Now, your lexicon today would say, so treat it as active. God delivered Lot. But that's not how Peter wrote it. Peter wrote that God delivered, he initiated the act of deliverance, but Lot had to participate in that deliverance. Now we recognize that without all the Greek grammar and all of that kind of, of stuff, that as we read the story, if Lot had not followed the angels, he would not have been delivered. If Lot had not been obedient to their instruction, he would not have been delivered. He plays a role in his deliverance. Now that's important because we're going to talk about our deliverance. And we need to understand, we ask God to rescue me, help me, save me. We have a role of participation in that. As a matter of fact, Lot followed that role. His wife, however, did not. His three married daughters and his three son-in-laws did not. And so they perished in the process while Lot and his two unmarried daughters followed in obedience and were delivered. So verse 8 says, For that righteous man dwelling among them in seeing and hearing vexed his righteous soul from day to day with their unlawful deeds. Now notice that passage is in parentheses in the King James text. That means this is parenthetic. It's an explanation of what he had said further. It's adding more information to his talking about Lot being delivered. He was delivered by his participation. But notice Peter says, For what he saw and what he heard, this righteous man living among them, living in the sphere and the environment of them, day 
after day his righteous soul his righteous soul by means of their lawless deeds was continually being tormented. So he tells us about the <clears throat> frustration, the anxiety, the vexation that Lot experienced by living in an environment that was hostile toward God and toward morality. And then we have the assurance in verse 9, the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptation and to reserve the unjust under the day of judgment to be punished. Again, the word order in the Greek reads, keeps on knowing how the Lord, godly men out of temptation to deliver, but the unrighteous into the day of judgment to be punished, he reserves. The Lord has complete knowledge which he maintains through the present time of how to deliver godly men out of te temptation. Now that word temptation is translated from the Greek word that identifies testing. It's not, when we see the word temptation, we identify it as a solicitation to, to do evil or to do wrong. But this word identifies the whole aspect of testing, persecution, affliction uh, that we experience as well as temptation. That the Lord keeps on knowing how to deliver us as a matter of purpose, how to deliver out of testing the righteous. But, on the other hand, to uh, into the day of judgment to be punished, he reserves the right for the ungodly. So for the godly, the Lord keeps on knowing how to deliver us out of those trials. Now notice the word out identifies that we've been in. <laughs> he doesn't keep us out of trials. He delivers us out of trials. But there is that middle voice <laughs> that's with the passive. He will initiate the action of delivering us, but we have to participate in the action as well. So the text reads this way, And righteous lot continually being distressed through oppression under the way of life of unprincipled men in the sphere of sexual and moral excess, he participated in his rescue that was initiated by God. And because of what he saw and what he heard, that righteous man living among them in that sphere by the means of their unlawful acts were con was continuously being tormented. The Lord has complete knowledge which He continues to maintain through present time of how to rescue as a matter of purpose godly men. But He reserves as a matter of purpose the unrighteous unto a day of judgment. 
So the Lord knows how to deal with people. God dealt with Lot in grace. His behavior did not conform to God's plan in his day-by-day life. He pitched his tent toward Sodom. Then we find him living in Sodom. And then we find him on the city council in Sodom. Compromise in one area leads then to compromise in the other areas as well. Lot was identified as righteous because he believed God. It's written in Psalm chapter 14 and repeated in Romans chapter 3, there is none righteous, no, not one. How then is Lot identified as righteous? Not once, but twice in the text. It is because of God's amazing grace. Grace is defined in a variety of ways, and one of the best ways that I've found, most accurate way to describe grace is to identify that we have grace in three areas. We have grace for salvation, and then we have more grace that is given to us to live the Christian way of life. And then for eternity, we have grace. For salvation, we take the letters G-R-A-C-E that spell grace and make an acrostic out of it that says God's righteousness at Christ's expense. When we discover that we are accepted by God and given eternal life and eternal citizenship in the kingdom of God at the expense of Jesus Christ, He conformed to the specifications of the plan and we appropriate that by faith by calling upon the name of the Lord for salvation. And in that moment, we call upon the name of the Lord for salvation. God's righteousness is credited to our account. So we're holy. We're without blame, according to the Word of God. We have God's righteousness at Christ's expense. So Lot, like his uncle Abraham, believed God... And it was counted to him for righteousness. James chapter 2 verse 23 gives us that admonition concerning the deliverance that is available because of the righteousness that is accredited. Before the cross, when Lot was delivered out of Sodom, faith was in anticipation of the promise. After the cross, Faith is in the historical realization of the promise. The Messiah has always been the focus. In the Old Testament, look forward to His coming. In the New Testament, look back upon His coming. Lot did not merit the favor of God and its resulting deliverance, but Lot appropriated grace by believing God. Through faith, We received God's righteousness at Christ's expense 
and that grace is available to us, it's the only means by which we can be delivered from hell and have a secure position in the kingdom of God. Secondly, Lot was vexed by his circumstances because of a lack of faith. Vexation is the result of our failure to apply God's Word to our circumstances and life. And we experience a lot of vexation because we just don't make the application of God's Word in its principles and its promises to our life. Solomon, he's been called the wisest man that ever lived. That's not the case. He had more wisdom than any man that's ever lived. He didn't apply it. To be wise, you have to apply the wisdom. He didn't apply it. Wisdom, the ability to understand how to apply the Word of God to my life, to your life. Solomon had a measure of that more than any before him or any after him, but he failed to make the application. So he said, I've seen all the works that are done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and vexation of the Spirit. God not only provides for our salvation through grace, where we have God's righteousness at Christ's expense, but He provides the ability for us to live the Christian life, to receive deliverance out of our trials. We define the grace to live the Christian life by using the letters G-R-A-C-E as God's resources at Christ's expense. God does not call us to a task. He has not provided the resources for us to perform. He gives us the resources to live the life and to accomplish the objectives that He gives us. The object for our faith as it relates to salvation, is Jesus Christ. Our faith must be in Him. Faith is a transitive verb. That is, faith requires an object that performs the work. You could put faith in all of the isms of the world and still rot in hell. I don't know if you can rot in a burning fire or not, but still spend an eternity in hell because the object, all the others have failed to perform the work. Jesus Christ alone performed the work for our salvation. Born of a virgin without the old sin nature, lived a sinless life, died a sacrificial death, conquered death in the grave with the resurrection, ascended to the Father to intercede. He is the only one that's done the work. And so for salvation... Our faith must be in Him. What about grace for living the Christian life? God's resources at Christ's expense. Unless you put your dependency upon those resources, upon His promises, upon His principles, then you will have vexation as you go through your life. So God's resources at Christ's expense is available to us and we appropriate that by our faith in His Word 
in putting his word into application in our lives day by day. The principles and the guidance that is found there. Now, to appropriate grace for salvation by faith, we could define that using the letters F-A-I-T-H, forsaking all, I trust Him. We have to give up any other means. We have to deny any other means. We have to stop trying to do it ourselves and forsake all and trust Him. For living the Christian life, and there's an error in your study guide that says God's grace for salvation can be defined as, no, it should have said God's grace for living the Christian life should be defined as God's resources at Christ's expense. How do we appropriate the resources of God? By faith. Following, applying, entrusting Him. F-A-I-T-H. For salvation, forsaking all, I trust Him for living the Christian life. Following, applying, in trusting Him. The object to live the Christian life is the Word of God, its principles, and its promises. So Lot was vexed by his circumstances because he did not apply God's Word to his situation. Worry, anxiety, and frustration are the result of failing to apply God's promises to your circumstances. Worry is a sin. Anxiety is a sin. Frustration is a sin. And there are a whole list of things that are a whole lot more fun than worry or anxiety or frustration. So if you're going to deliberately sin, you ought to find one that's more pleasurable. We beat ourselves to death. But they are anxiety and worry and frustration are all a lack of faith in the promises of following and applying in trusting Him. In our exegesis of Second Peter chapter 2, verse 7, we saw the word vexed is translated from the Greek participle katapomimon, and it means continually distressed through oppression. What was vexed by his circumstances because of faulty choices that he made when Abraham and Lot's herdsmen had that debate, he pitched his tent towards Sodom and then went into Sodom to live and then was on the city council. Even after his deliverance from the destruction of Sodom, Lot's two unmarried daughters said there's not going to be any Progeny. There's not going to be any offspring. The end of the family is going to come. So the older one said to the young one, let's get dad drunk and you can lay with him. I'll lay with him the first night and then the next night you, we get him drunk and you can lay with him. And out of that incestual relationship, we have the people of Moab and the people of Ammon. Two sons were conceived, one named Moab and the other named Ammon. The Ammonites and the Moabites were constantly a thorn in the flesh to the Israelites, to Abraham's seed, though they are 
a generation removed. Our lifestyle brings about much of our unhappiness, our, our lack of joy, because we fail to apply the principles and the promises of the Word of God. To be rescued from our trials, we must participate with God. We can see, we can see Lot participating. We can see Lot moving according to the direction of the angels. And we can see the action on the part of Lot's wife and the outcome from that. In verse 7, we had the word erisato, translated delivered. It's a verb in the aorist tense, the middle passive voice, the indicative mood, the third person singular. The thing I want you to notice there, it is God and Lot participated in his rescue. In verse 9, and there's an error in whoever typed this up, <clears throat> wonder who that might have been. The word should be ruesthai, ruesthai, to deliver. Both erusato and ruesthai come from the same word. They are different forms of the same word. The word erusato is a verb that expresses action. The word ruesthai is a verbal infinitive that identifies purpose. They're from the same word, rumai. Both of those words, they don't look anything alike, but they're from the same root word, which means to rescue or deliver. The first, as I said, is a verb expresses action. The second is an infinitive that denotes purpose. In both of the places, I wanted to point out its middle passive voice. God provides a means we must participate with Him. There is no need to worry when we read the promises of God. Over 7,000 promises that relate to the believer in the Christian life. One or two will get us through with some joy if we apply them. Can it all joy when you fall into various trials we have written in the Word of God? Count it all joy. Means go back and add it up and have a relaxed mental attitude. Be joyful because God is working this for your good. Romans 8.28 And we know that God causes all things to work together for good. So, the reason we worry, the reason we have anxiety, the reason we get frustrated... We don't take the way of deliverance. We don't participate with God. He's given us the guideline. We fail to use it. James chapter 5, verses 21 and 22 says, Wherefore lay apart all filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness, and receive with meekness the engrafted word which is able to save, that's deliver, that's our word here, to deliver your souls. But be ye doers of the word, and not hearers only deceiving your own selves. So God has provided deliverance. It's in His word, it's in the promises, it's in the, uh, the principles. 
we must learn them and then apply them to the circumstances that we develop. But God also reserves the unrighteous unto the day of judgment. We have in Psalm 37, a psalm of Asaph. Truly God is good to Israel, even to such as are of a clean heart. But as for me, my feet were almost gone. My steps had well nigh slipped. For I was envious of the foolish when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For there are no bands in their death, but their strength is firm. They are not in trouble as other men, neither are they plagued like other men. Therefore pride compasseth them about as a chain. Violence covereth them as a garment. Their eyes stand out with fatness. They have more than heart could wish. They are corrupt and they speak wickedly concerning oppression. They speak lawfully. They set their mouth against the heavens and their tongue walketh through the earth. Therefore his people return hither and waters of a full cup are wrung out to them. And they say, how doth God know? And is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, they are ungodly who prosper in the world. They increase in riches. Verily, notice this, Verily I was cleansed my heart in vain and washed my hands in innocence for all the day long I've been plagued and chastened every morning. If I say, I will speak thus, Behold, I should offend against the generation of the children. When I thought to know this, it was too painful for me until I went into the sanctuary of God. And then I understood their end. Surely thou didst set them in slippery places. Thou cast them down into destruction. How are they brought into desolation as in a moment? They were utterly consumed with terror as a dream when one awakens. So, O Lord, when Thou awakenest, Thou shalt despise their image. Thus my heart was grieved and I was pricked in my reins. That means emotions. So foolish was I and ignorant. I was as a beast before Thee. Nevertheless, I am continually with Thee. Thou hast holden me up by Thy right hand. Thou shalt guide me with Thy counsel, and afterward receive me to glory, whom I have in heaven. Whom have I in heaven but Thee? And there is none upon earth that I desire beside Thee. My my flesh and my heart faileth, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For lo, they that are far from Thee shall perish. They shall be destroyed, all of them that go a-whoring from thee. But it is good for me to draw near to God. I have put my trust in the Lord God that I may declare all thy works. My feet were slipping. He said, I got to the point where I was envious. They have all the money. They have all the advantage. And then I went to the house of the Lord. As we read the Word of God, we understood judgment is coming. And 
they do well to get all they can here because they ain't going to have anything else, anything there. They say you can't take it with you. Well, the judgment is by fire, so it would be perish, it would perish in the fire as well. So in the sphere of faith in the promises of God, we are to develop a morality that will give credibility to our lifestyle. And in that sphere, we are to develop a process of study of the Word of God. In that study of the Word of God, we can develop a self-controlled will. In that self-controlled will, contentment, regardless of circumstances, in that contentment, we will be able to develop that consistency of duty to God that we have as sojourners that please Him. And we can develop a responsive love which will lead to a self-sacrificial love. Self-sacrificial love eliminates expectations. I stumble over it (laughs) every time. Self-sacrificial love eliminates expectations. You can't disappoint any individual that doesn't have any expectations. Expectations eliminate then, having them eliminated, eliminate frustration. Self-sacrificial love does not keep a record of the evil done to it And so it eliminates anxiety. Self-sacrificial love does not promote one's own will over the will of the object love that eliminates jealousy. Self-sacrificial love treats the object loved in grace, thereby assuming all the responsibility for a relationship with them. But of course it all begins at salvation. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God and the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The Bible says, With the heart man believes unto righteousness, but with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Remember, deliverance out of our circumstances involves God and us working together. God provides the direction. He provides the information. We make the application and we're able to go out of our cities of Sodom and Gomorrah that we encounter in a variety of ways delivered by Him.